You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. It's day five of the shutdown of a major gasoline pipeline less than 24 hours away from a critical White House meeting that could decide the fate of the infrastructure bill. And we're all waiting to see whether an inflation report issued tomorrow will be good news for President Joe Biden. I'm Emily Wilkins here to get into the biggest news of the day. I'm Emily Wilkins, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and George C., CEO of Annandale Capital and former senior advisor to Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. We're going to get started off on a very busy show with talking about the Colonial Pipeline, the pipeline that has been shut down since Friday as a result of a cyber attack. The pipeline accounts for 45% of the East Coast fuel. And today we had Energy Secretary Granholm saying at the White House briefing that Colonial Pipeline expects to make the full restart decision on Wednesday. Here's the sound on that. I've had several conversations with uh, the CEO of Colonial and who has indicated that by close of business tomorrow, Colonial will be in a position to make the full restart decision. Uh, But even after that decision is made, it will take a few days to ramp up operations. Got a... Uh, Secretary Granholm there. Uh, George, I want to start by coming to you a little bit on this. We've already started to see some of the impacts for the pipeline being shut down for just the the last four or five days. The national average for a gallon of regular gasoline has rose two cents, much more in some of the states that are impacted by this pipeline. In Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp signed an executive order suspending the state's gasoline tax through Saturday. In Virginia, Governor Ralph Northam has declared a state of emergency in an effort to suspend some of the fuel transport rules. George, if this goes on for much longer, what other sort of impacts might we start seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. This is a a very important substantive uh, 
subject, I, w- I would say it, it, it really is a national security subject on two levels. One is energy. Energy is a national security threat to the United States. We have to have sufficient energy, whether it's clean power or fossil fuels or whatever, for our economy to run and our, our country to be safe and reliable. And then secondly, it's a cybersecurity nat- uh, national threat. We, I don't think people are aware of how vulnerable we are to, to cyber terrorism and cyber attacks against our infrastructure as well as our military and our banks and our financial system and everything else. So this sums it up all in one fell swoop. I hope it raises awareness of this and how vulnerable we are. And I also brought with peril the, the inevitable transition to more and more forms of clean power that we're going to be doing over the next several decades. We're never going to be completely off fossil fuels, at least in my lifetime, I don't think. But how we transition is really important. And to make sure that we don't accelerate that to the degree that that we don't have sufficient energy and inflation goes crazy and the average Joe or Judy out there on the street can't afford to pay their their gas bills at home and their, their, their gas bills for their cars. So it's a really serious issue and one that deserves a lot of attention for policymakers and business alike. You know, George, you make a, a really great point there in talking about sort of how critical this infrastructure is. And obviously, President Biden, we've talked so much about his infrastructure proposal, but it doesn't include anything on natural gas pipelines, nor does it include anything on cybersecurity. Jeannie, is this something where the president has a bit of an oversight here? Does the package that Biden has proposed and that Congress is currently working to put together, do they need to include pipelines like Colonial Pipeline? pipeline and items like cybersecurity. They absolutely do. Uh, You know, it it is fascinating because I heard somebody say, you know, what happened with the Colonial Pipeline is in some senses similar to the pandemic to the extent that we knew it was coming. It was not a matter of if, it it, it was just when. And this is the first of what looks like it is going to be sort of a way of life in the United States and around the world with these cyber extortion attempts that have become really what people describe as death by a thousand cuts. They are paralyzing critical infrastructure across the country. So the president and the White House and the administration absolutely have to take steps to address this. Probably, if they're going to have an infrastructure bill, this should be at the top of the list. And as you mentioned, that's not what we're seeing here. And and just to go back to what you were saying to George, you mentioned, you know, Ralph Northam in Virginia, also Roy Cooper in North Carolina. And I happened to be just speaking anecdotally with, a, with somebody in Virginia a few minutes ago who was at a gas station saying the lines were out of onto the street. So there is absolutely panic in these states that have been hit by this. And as you mentioned, as we heard the secretary say, a decision will be made on Wednesday. If this goes much longer, it's going to have an enormous impact on the price of gas and panic across the country is going to get worse. Jeannie, I just want to follow up with you very quickly. Why do you think that President Biden did not include pipelines and cybersecurity in his proposal? I mean, it's a pretty wide-reaching, comprehensive proposal. Uh, why did this not make the cut? Uh, it, it's it's so important because, you know, at, you know, what, $4 trillion, it, it's hard to imagine that this wasn't at the top of the list. I can only say that it was not something he talked an awful lot about during the campaign. And much of what we see in the bill, as you know, Emily, it, are things 
things that he talked about during the campaign. So I think this happening is so unfortunate, but it may sort of give impetus to having a discussion about including this in the bill or the administration has a plan to propose something else to address it. We know there's going to be this executive order, but, you know, again, it's a little bit too little too late at this point as infrastructure around the country is being hit. Jeannie, also, you made the comparison of this cyber attack to coronavirus in the sense that there was a sense that something like this could happen. It was only a question of when. There's another parallel I'm going to draw here. Uh, we've seen reports and even photos of individuals uh, rushing to gas stations, trying to fill up tanks of gas, both in their own car. I saw one photo going around Twitter of a, a couple with several of those red gas canisters and just pouring gasoline into them. And uh, Secretary Granholm addressed this. She said even after decision is made on whether or not to restart, it's going to take a few days to get up and running. But she warned that there's no reason for people to hoard gasoline. Let's listen to the sound on that. Let me emphasize that much as there um, was no cause for, say, hoarding toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic, there should be no cause for hoarding gasoline, uh, especially in light of the fact that the pipeline should be substantially operational by the end of this week and over the weekend. George, is she is she right about that? Are these people who are rushing to the gas station, do, do they kind of have a point? I mean, this it was such a, I think, a surprise to a number of Americans that a pipeline could be shut down by a cybersecurity attack. Is there some logic here to sort of taking these precautions? <laughs> I think there is logic. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. And I, 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 I remember a couple of years ago when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, and everybody said the same thing. Don't panic. Don't rush out and buy gas. And I was with my wife in the Texas Hill Country, which is over 200 miles away, and I laughed at it. We didn't rush out and buy gas. And we live in Dallas, which is 280 miles away. And I went out uh, when we were getting near empty, and we we're going to have to go home, and we had to go to about 10 gas stations to find gas to get home over 200 miles away from Houston. So I, I do think you should be precautious and, and should have a full tank of gas, gas, especially if you're in affected areas. And I just want to harken back to the fact that I, the Biden administration doesn't have to like Exxon or Chevron or World Dutch or some of these big oil companies. In fact, they might loathe them, but they're going to have to be good public servants in terms of overseeing the transition that is coming from fossil fuels to clean power and not rush it arbitrarily and, and be shooting at Exxon and Chevron and, and hit the little guy, the little guy who's got to buy a tank, a tank of gas and needs gas for lighting and, and, and heating in their homes and things of that sort. This has got to be managed well, and, and you've got to do what's best for the American people. And, yes, we are going to transition, although we'll always need fossil fuels, but it's got to be well controlled and calibrated to make sure we do what's best for the American people and not virtue signal and, and hurt the little guy and the little gal. That's just that's just bad public policy. And, and George, I just wanted to follow up on that quickly and, and ask you, because I happen to be talking to college age students, my students today, and, you know, they don't remember like I do the 1970s when we lived through this and how absolutely horrifying it is when you're in an energy crisis like that. So do you think there is a generational aspect to this that something like this could have a a sort of impact on how people view this switch we're going through in terms of energy as it pertains to the environment? And I know we only have like 30 seconds left, so I'm sorry. 
I would just say that those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it. And those of us who lived through the 70s and the stagflation and the lack of economic growth and President Carter's misery index, we don't want to go back there. We, we don't want to get consumed with virtue signaling and kill the economy off and, and bring back rampant inflation. It's bad for everybody. So we've just got to be cautious and remember our history, to your point. Absolutely. I think, George, that's an, an excellent point. And Jeannie, just a really interesting observation as well. I mean, I I was not alive in the 1970s. Um, and there is, you know, uh, definitely a, a bit of a generational gap when you sort of look at how different individuals go ahead and approach this. I think, too, it will be interesting to see what comes out of this White House task force on the colonial pipeline uh, and whether anything gets into that final infrastructure bill. Well, we've got a big day coming up in Washington tomorrow. Uh, President Biden has talked a big game on bipartisanship. And this week, we're going to get a signal on whether or not he'll be able to deliver that on his $4.4 trillion proposal, particularly on the part that includes infrastructure. That's the $2.25 trillion package, roads, bridges, highways, all of the stuff that President Biden thinks that he might be able to get a deal with on Republicans. Two key meetings coming up. Tomorrow, he'll be meeting with the Democratic and Republican heads of the House and the Senate, the big four, as they're sometimes known, to see if he can get them on board with a potential path forward. And then on Thursday, White House President Biden is going to meet with six Republican senators with the goal of looking for ways to compromise on the administration's desired infrastructure plan. Senator John Barrasso is one of the six senator from Wyoming, and he said today that he's hopeful a middle ground could be reached by both parties. Here's the sound on that. We are coming with a good faith offer, and we're hoping to find common ground on things that the American people would think of as infrastructure, roads, bridges, ports, airports, waterways, uh, and of course, in the 21st century, uh, high-speed broadband. Jeannie, for these two meetings, the one on Wednesday and the one on Thursday, what are you going to be looking for in what lawmakers say coming out of the meetings? I feel like normally, you know, lawmakers leave the meeting with the president. They say things went well. It was really constructive, yada, yada, yada. How are we going to really get a sense of what was said inside of those rooms? You know, I don't know if we're going to be able to get a good sense. I would love to be a fly on the wall. You've got, you know, Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden together for the first time. You've also got Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer who are after their back and forth about the voting bill. It's going to be quite a meeting tomorrow, I imagine. But I think what I'm looking for specifically, if we get intel as to what they actually talked about, is going to be can Joe Biden hold his Democratic caucus together while he reaches across the aisle. You know, I think there are signs that Republicans are willing to go up on, on um, Shelley Moore Capito's initial proposal. I think she signaled that. I think Barrasso and the other six that are meeting with him on Thursday have signaled that. But what I'm not as clear about is that he can hold the 50 in the Senate Democrats together, and particularly the House, if he deals too much with Republicans. And, you know, we heard a little bit about this from Bernie Sanders, amongst others, in the last few days. So to me, that's the biggest signal I'm looking for. 
George C., you are very close uh, with, obviously, Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, you understand the Republican side and the Republican perspective of here. Is What is the incentive for Republicans to come to the table on this one? I mean, if they compromise with President Biden, isn't that just giving Democrats a win? You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, I think what would the motivation for, for real public servants and not political animals would be good public policy for the American people. And I think I'm frankly more interested in the Democratic side on this one because I think there's a real friction between President Biden and his desire for a legacy and his desire for real accomplishments and the 2022 midterm elections. I think that there's a lot of angst on the Democratic side about at least losing the House, which seems likely, and potentially losing the Senate again. And I think that if, if you have a compromise package that goes through, it's good for everybody. It's good for the president. It's good for the country. And it's good for the Congress. But it also, I think, probably increases Republican chances of taking back at least one chamber of the Congress. And I think I think congressional partisans on the Democratic side are going to be very opposed to something like that. And, you know, the Biden package includes a lot of things that aren't infrastructure. And the Republican side is almost completely infrastructure. And I, I think the minority leader McConnell indicated he's already willing to go higher than, than Shelley Moore Capito's proposal where he said six to eight hundred billion, which is still a huge infrastructure package, which is higher than what she indicated is what he would favor. And I, I hope they get something done. I think it'd be good for the country. I think it'd be good for the president. And I think the president's got to think, am I going to do the right thing and worry about my legacy and let the chips fall where they may? We may lose the House of Congress anyway, even if we stonewall or whether we, we uh, make some kind of compromise. I hope he tries to get something done, and it would be a lot less than what he initially proposed if they did. And George, I couldn't agree more that I think you really are seeing some tension there, as you described, between President Biden's sort of interest in building his legacy on this front and then also the Democrats' interest in holding the Senate. And I'm really, really curious, Emily, to see what happens, what the progressives in the House particularly have to say as these meetings go forward. You know, I have been saying, and I know you've been saying, I think this week we will probably get an inkling, if, to your point, we get the real story about what's going on in there as to whether we're going to see some bipartisanship that Democrats and progressives can hold on to. Absolutely. And, you know, Jeannie, to your point, we have already seen progressives come out and have some concerns about President Biden's plan. Number one, they say that it doesn't go far enough in spending, that they should try and get even more. They've also raised concerns that his plan does not address health care. It doesn't expand Medicare. It doesn't talk about finding ways to lower prescription drug prices. So those are things that progressives have issues with. And of course, you've already heard Senator Joe Manchin has a problem raising the corporate tax rate to 28 percent. House Democrats have a problem with not addressing the state local deductions. So lots and lots of questions. 
I'm Emily Wilkins, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jamie Sean Zeno, and we are also joined by George C., the CEO of Annandale Capital and a former senior advisor to Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. We want to get into a report that is coming tomorrow that the White House and Congress are going to be watching very closely for on U.S. consumer prices. Uh, the question is, what did inflation do in the last month? Expectations are that prices are going to have risen again for a fifth month as the U.S. recovers from the coronavirus pandemic. But Republicans have also repeatedly invoked the risk of high inflation as one of the reasons they didn't support that $1.9 trillion coronavirus virus stimulus that passed earlier this year. They've also said that they are concerned that if President Biden's $4.4 trillion proposal passes, that we're going to see inflation skyrocket up even further, hurting Americans right at the time where they are trying to get out of the uh, economic havoc from the coronavirus pandemic. George, you are the CEO of investing firm Endel Capital. What are you going to be looking for in this report tomorrow, and what do you expect to see at this point? Yeah, Emily, that, that's a real cogent question right now for, for uh, Main Street and Wall Street both. And unfortunately, the official inflation statistics don't include every measure because they cut out some measures that are used more uh, cyclical or temporary, and it usually understates the inflation number. And with all the all the stimulus spending during the pandemic and now post-pandemic, and all the tax cuts, and in this roar of, of renewed economic activity as people get out of the bunker and get back to work and get back to their lives, we're going to have inflationary pressures. And it, it could be very, very bad for the economy. The thing to gauge is what does the country look like a year from now? It, it, does the inflation become more subdued again as, as these temporary stimulus and an economic boom post-pandemic uh, taper off a bit, or does it continue? And the Fed is very, very uh, sanguine about it. They think it's going to fade back and it's not a problem. I, I think they may be overly optimistic. And, and sometimes the Fed gets behind the curve on fighting inflation, and, and they rush to make up for that later on and raise interest rates pretty dramatically. And that's really bad for the stock market and it eventually becomes bad for economic growth. So it's gonna be a very complicated situation and one that investors and consumers and, and citizens should all keep a close watch on the next three to six months. Well, George, I want to follow up a little bit with that because you did, you know, mention where the Fed is at right now. They've certainly been responding to this. Uh, we've heard from Treasury Secretary Yellen as well as Fed Reserve Chair Jay Powell that, you know, both of them have sort of downplayed concerns about potential inflation. But I'm wondering sort of what, when you look at what the Fed is doing, at what you're hearing from Treasury Secretary Yellen, uh, you mentioned that sometimes they get behind the curve. Do you think that this is one of of those cases? Not yet. I, I think it's too early to raise rates and, and start uh, tightening up on, on interest rates and, and the financial markets. And, but Secretary Yellen and Chairman Powell are both doves. They're, they're both very uh, low interest rate, economic growth, stimulate the economy type uh, professionals. And I think they're very vulnerable to be a little late and reactive to inflation. I think the key thing for them to do is if they see signs nine to 12 months from now that they're wrong and that inflation is not uh, tapering off as the economy gets its initial sugar high from all the stimulus over with and, and if economic growth slows and inflation tapers off, they can stand pat. 
but inflation remains very robust and a real enemy of economic growth and, and a threat for a recession, they're going to have to take measures to cut off inflation a bit so we don't get overheated. It's a very real risk right now. And George, you you made such an important point when you talked about both Main Street and Wall Street and how they're sort of seeing all these signs, you know, from the labor shortage to the supply chain challenges. Um, we are seeing, I think, one of the one of the numbers I saw that was really striking was that we're seeing more Americans expect inflation, fear inflation in than we've seen in a decade. So I wonder. Do you think that the Fed, as they continue to say that they won't have to raise rates, this will be temporary, do you think that they have to do a better job in terms of putting their message out there, which seems, I guess, in the data I'm seeing, to being lost on people on the ground? Yeah, I I think I want to be clear. I think the Fed was, was heroic during the pandemic. The steps they took to keep our country from really having a much worse economic crisis as well as the health crisis were really historical in, in terms of how good they were. But I, I do think that this is not the worst inflation scare in a decade. Emily, I'd go back to the Volcker and Reagan era of the early 80s is the last time inflation was this big a threat. And I think they've got to be really vigilant about it. I'm Frankly, I'm not worried about Wall Street. Wall Street survives everything. And if inflation does become a threat, they'll move to investments that do well during inflation. I'm worried about Main Street because inflation hits hits the little guy and the small business a lot worse than it hits Wall Street and could be a threat to the well-being of the average American. And I, I think that's what the Fed needs to be really concerned about as they monitor this. Yeah, and certainly not only the Fed, but also members of Congress who are going to have to face those voters and those Main Street business owners in just a couple of years. Uh, you know, Jeannie, if inflation does rise tomorrow, as is expected, uh, just real quickly here, yes, no, is this going to be uh, make it much harder for President Biden to get his proposal through Congress? I think that people are pretty much set in their ways in terms of how they're going to vote, depending on the size of this thing. I know you said yes, no. I, I say no, but I think it may change people's views outside of Congress on the bill. Excellent. Well, uh, definitely going to be watching that report very, very closely tomorrow, as well as how lawmakers respond to it. You know, I, I know that obviously as Secretary Yellen, uh, Jay Powell, they've both been really trying to uh, reassure lawmakers and sort of the American public in general that inflation isn't going to be a problem. But George, as I think you pointed out, it, it, at this point, we don't necessarily know, and it could be in a position where nine months down the road, this does sort of wind up hampering what was supposed to be a recovery is led then back into a potential recession. Well, coming up, we are going to be speaking with former Energy, Energy Secretary Dan Briolet. We're going to be asking him a little bit more about his thoughts about the Colonial Pipeline shutdown and what's going to be happening. And George C., thank you so much for joining us today. All of wonderful insights. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Bloomberg's politics contributor, Jeannie Shanzano. We are welcoming to the program former Energy Secretary Dan Bruyette, who held top spots in the department 
during the Trump administration. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, wanted to start talking a little bit about the Colonial Pipeline, uh, which has been shut down since Friday due to attacks from a cyber threat. And I'm curious, as someone who used to oversee the Department of Energy, how much is it a shock to you that a pipeline as critical as the Colonial Pipeline for 45% of the East Coast fuel how much is it a shock that that pipeline could be the victim of a cybersecurity attack? Mm. Well, great to be with you guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. You know, it's, uh, I'd like to say it's not a shock, um, although whenever something happens like this, your, your senses are shocked a bit. But we've known about these cyber threats and we've known about the situation that we have with pipelines and other parts of the critical energy infrastructure for quite some time. So in that sense, perhaps it's not a complete shock. Uh, I think the industry has done a great job of preparing itself uh, over the years uh, as technology has changed, as these things have become more automated, uh, the pipeline infrastructure has become more automated, it's become more dependent upon the internet and ele uh, electricity to turn the valves on and off. We sort of knew that cyber was always going to be an issue. Uh, that being said, there's always more we can do, and it's important for us to remember as Americans that you know, this industry is not unlike uh, the individuals. It's not unlike you or I as consumers. We're always playing defense with these hackers. Uh, the hackers are the adversary. They're always on offense. So it makes it a very, very difficult situation for the industry day in and day out. Secretary, on that point, um, you, I know you said that the energy sector has done a great job preparing itself. And what do they do to prepare for these kinds of attacks or better yet to defend themselves against them? What have they done and what would you recommend they do going forward? Well, you know, what they do is one, they, they use the latest and, and best technologies available so that they can sense who is on their system, where they are in the system, what doesn't belong in the system. They're very good at identifying those things. Now, they're not perfect, just as you or I are not perfect, but they're much better than they used to be. Uh, at, at uh, finding these types of things. The other thing the industry has done quite well over the course of the last three to four years, is start to share information uh, with each other. Now they understand that they have to talk from time to time about things that they're seeing on their networks and you know, share that information so that others can identify things that may not be, um, you know, may not be right with their own network. The things that we can do better um, is that we can work you know, from the government side, and I say we, I, I'm speaking as if I'm still at the department, but it's one of the things that the department can do better, it's one of the things that the intelligence community can do better, is to start sharing some of the intelligence that we have as a government with the private sector. Uh, the, the industry often complains that the communication is a one-way street. They see things, they reported to the Department of Energy or they reported to the, the proper authorities, the proper the, the authorities never really take the time to share with the industry what else they're seeing on the networks or what else they're seeing in terms of threats. We can do a better job of that. So that seems like a really concrete step to take to go ahead and sharing that information, not only between companies, but also between uh, the government and sort of what they're seeing with those companies. Uh, I'm wondering, though, Secretary, is there something that could stop hacks like this on the Colonial Pipeline and other major pipelines? Or is this sort of always going to be a threat going forward that our nation's infrastructure systems could wind up being the victims of a cyber attack? Well, I, I think I think unfortunately the world in which we live is going to um, 
is going to suggest that this is going to be an ongoing threat. I mean, you, know, you think about your personal life again. You, know, you probably do some online banking. You use your telephone quite a bit. You use your iPhone quite a bit. Um, that's our life today. And unfortunately, that creates vulnerabilities that are going to be with us for quite some time. The other things that we can do, however, uh, are, are looking at supply chain and supply chain management. We know that China is an adversary. We know that Russia is an adversary. We know that Iran is an adversary and North Korea. So to the extent that we continue to move manufacturing of critical components for our electricity grid or for our energy infrastructure to places like China, we have to ask ourselves, does that make sense? Um, because when these things are manufactured overseas, they can come back to us with uh, components or with you know, communication uh, components that, that are going to allow an adversary to manipulate, perhaps, in some ways, our grid. And, and Secretary, on that point, because I think it's such an important point about the supply chain, as we're looking at the Republicans and Democrats debating about this infrastructure bill and trying to address some of these challenges, what do you see um, from your perch is missing in this infrastructure bill? I mean, Emily and I were just talking earlier about the fact there doesn't seem to be a big investment in sort of um, this this area of protecting this these critical utilities. Are there other things you see that are missing in that bill or by extension, things you like about the bill that you'd like to see passed? Mm-hmm. Well, look, I think the focus on infrastructure is a good focus. And I think we we should all agree that what's needed in, in, in America is more infrastructure and more redundancy, especially in our critical energy infrastructure. So we need more pipelines, not less. We need more transmission uh, towers built, not less. So to the extent that we can agree on those things, I think that's helpful. What's missing in the bill, however, and what's missing in the conversation is obviously any mention of cybersecurity. And I'm not suggesting that it should be in. Perhaps it shouldn't be, but it's not there today. So I suspect that there'll be some conversations about that going forward. Uh, the other thing that I think is missing in this bill, and one of the things that we should we should recognize, is that we should be looking at the policies that perhaps prevent the development of infrastructure in America. And what do I mean by that? Just really quickly, there's a couple things that we could do, I think, to make the permitting process more efficient. If you're familiar with NEPA, the National Energy Policy Act, it requires that each agency do an environmental study before a permit is granted. Well, if you if you have a pipeline and you need FERC approval, you need EPA approval, you might need Department of Interior approval, and you know one or two other agencies may get involved in that act as well. Do you need each one of those agencies to do a separate, distinct environmental study, or can we just collectively come together and do one? It's, it's steps like that that I think are very common sense that we could move this process along and allow this infrastructure to be built. It's not just a function of spending more money. Secretary, I want to stay on this infrastructure bill for a minute here. President Biden Mm -hmm. this week is going to be headed to Ford Motor Company. Uh, Secretary, obviously, you know that that company well as the former vice president of it. And when there, Biden is going to continue to pitch for the infrastructure plan. You talked a little bit about what wasn't in it. I want to focus on something that is. Lots of proposals in there trying to promote renewable energy, uh, electric cars, uh, be in, initiatives such as that meant to really boost the environment. I'm wondering if you think that that is the right focus at this point. Is President Biden sort of looking to the future with this, or is perhaps he going a little bit too fast and leaving some other industries behind? 
Mm. Well, I look, I think I think the market is driving toward the electrification of cars and automobiles, and I think that you know that's where the market is, and that's a good thing if that's where, what people want to buy. But you can't put the cart before the horse. If you're going to go full-on electric vehicles and you're going to electrify everything in America, then you need a you need an appropriate generation uh, portfolio, and you need an, an incredibly robust uh, transmission and distribution grid in order to get that electricity where it needs to be. And I think part of the premise behind the infrastructure bill is that we don't have that yet. And if that's true, then moving too quickly with some of these other ideas may put additional stress on that problem. But doesn't does the government then need to start somewhere? I mean, you say that the infrastructure isn't there yet. I mean, what is needed to be done at this point to get to the point where something like well, Biden's proposal could be useful? Well, I, th I think it's what we talked about just a minute ago. It's it's looking at the permitting process. That's really the hurdle to building new infrastructure today. It's not a function of money. The private, the private markets. Uh, if you talk to a private equity firm, they're, they're a washing capital. You know, money is not really the issue. People are willing to build things in America today. The challenge is, is that you can't get approval. You cannot get the state of New York, for instance, to approve a pipeline that would take natural gas from Pennsylvania and bring it to Boston. They will not approve it. They will not permit it. That's the burden. That's the challenge. It's not a lack of government funding. It's not a lack of government incentive. It's just the unwillingness to permit these projects. Former Education Energy Secretary Dan yet thank you so much for taking the time, weighing in on the pipeline, weighing in on the infrastructure plan. That is all for today's show. Uh, I'm Emily Wilkins, was joined today by Bloomberg's politics contributor, Jeannie Shanzano. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.